0: this let me show you a
1: way
2: well hi folks this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the survival podcast there's always one man's view of the changing world the changing times and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't today is June the 23rd, 2022, this is episode 3111. I don't know why, but there's something about the episode numbers and the three one one, and then another number that's messing with my eyes, uh, with my numeric weirdness. And so I'm gonna be happy when we get into the thirty one twenty somethings because then the number. I know you don't care, but I just I'm looking at it and it's bugging me. Three one one one. No. Anyway, it is an expert council Q and A show today. Here's what we got on doc for you today. Ron Paul will be talking about the real reason gun grabbers want red flag laws. Now, many of you know that this morning the Supreme Court opinion came out on the New York gun law and struck it down. So that's good news in the world of freedom of the right to keep and bear arms. However, they are looking to do these red flag laws, and I'm going to tell you that it's, it's, it's probably a done deal that it's going to happen this uh, the Senate compromise, where a bunch of Republicans sold out you Republicans again. I'm not even shocked. I know you are, but I am not. Uh, but we're gonna talk about the real reason behind the red flag laws. Damik Mc, Adams will talk about how the climate crisis hype has now created an energy actual crisis. And Chris Rossini will talk about how the Fed doesn't know what the interest rate should be. <laughs> no one does. Literally, I'm going e- I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pick that one to say a little bit about after it's old, that segment's over, and I'm going to put it back on you and say, well, what would you set the interest rates at? It'll be an interesting thing to put into your brain. Uh, Dr. Ken Berry will talk about the thermo- ther- thr- thrombogenic uh, hypothesis of heart disease. What's that mean? You'll find out when Ken talks about it. It's eh, a bunch of bullshit, basically. Uh, Tim Toolman Cook has top five tools under 30 bucks. This is an awesome segment. It's a little bit older segment because I had vacation and all. I'm so happy to bring this to you. And several of these tools I've used and I love myself, and I'll throw a little bit in on them. Jeff Lawton will talk about swales on steep slopes and to swale or not to swale. Uh, John Pugliano, I'm sure you guys want to hear from him with all the economic chaos going on right now. He's going to have a lightning round on investing in economics Nick Ferguson is going to have a few questions he's going to answer on rabbits, feeding them, and the use of leftovers, including feeding them with fodder so you don't have to rely on inputs. And that's going to springboard into my segment today, which has also been recorded as a video that will be released after this podcast as a standalone segment for sick sharing. And basically, I'm going to talk about a rude awakening for those that think mutual assistance groups and growing all your own food are the solution. I'm not saying they're not a solution. I'm saying if you think they're the solution, you are, well, a little bit delusional. And I'll reference some comments that have been made to me recently about how it will fix everything and I'll just be all and what it what it did is it made me go out and look for a quote of the day for you. So I'm gonna give you the quote of the day now. It's by Ansel Adams. And it sure doesn't sound like it has anything to do with Doomsday. But it kind of does with the mindset of people who think, well, we'll just have our own freedom cells or our own groups and we'll have our parallel economy and we won't need them. I think we can offset a lot with it, but we can't fix it all. Here's what Ansel Adams said about, well, myths and creeds. He said myths and creeds are historic struggles to comprehend the truth in the world Myths and creeds are heroic struggles to comprehend the truths in the world. And we read that and we think, oh, this is why we had these stories of like Poseidon or Hercules or Thor or even modern religions if you're not of the the persuasion. This is all this ancient hokum. No, my friends, today, right now, We conjure up myths and creeds to help us deal with the struggle to comprehend the truth in the world. That's why some people are still walking around wearing a surgical mask. It's a myth that it helps you, but it makes them feel better. It helps them comprehend what they perceive as the truth in the world. I would tell you that the religion of statism is a direct result of a struggle to comprehend not just the truth in the world, but the scope of the problems in the world. If we just get the right people in office, you don't think that's a myth? But we do this individually. We conjure myths and creeds for ourselves individually and in small collectives all the time to make us feel better. This is fine while the flames rage around us. It'll be okay because I said the right prayer, or I put on the right clothes, or I took the right picture, or whatever it is. The reality is, the scope of the problem of feeding the world is enormous. And many of the things that we talk about are solutions, but none of them are standalone, and none of them have progressed enough to solve the actual problem yet. And anything that is contrary to that, in my opinion, is a myth that we find comfort in. And I am not one to comfort you irrationally. I'm one to often provide comfort in the face of hysteria, but not irrational comfort. These are the things we can do, but these are the limitations they have. And these are the other things that we need to do so that we are prepared if these eventualities come to pass. And some of them, not all of them, but some of them eventually always do. I said often in the early days of this podcast, when I would talk about the ant and the grasshopper, and I would tell the story of the ant and the grasshopper. I haven't done that in a while. Maybe I'll do that tomorrow on Outback with Jack. I think I will. I think we'll add a segment on the ant and the grasshopper. It's been a long time. But, of course, everybody knows in the story of the ant and the grasshopper, winter comes and the and the grasshopper's screwed. Well, I would talk about that in the early days of the show. We're talking about 08, 09. I would say, winter is coming. It always does. There was even an, on the old forum, there was a favorite Jack quotes thread, and that was one of the most uh, voted on for the you know favorite quote, winter is coming, it always does. Winter is always coming, some form of winter. Energy winter seasonal actual winter, supply shortage winter. For some people lately, it's been baby formula winter, hasn't it? Winter's coming. It always does. And we can do a lot of things with parallel economies, with growing our own food, with mutual assistance groups. But it's not the solution. It's just a piece of a solution. We'll talk about that today, too. With that, let's go ahead and hear from uh, Ron Paul's group. In order, you'll now hear from the man himself, Dr. Ron Paul. Uh, you will then hear from Dan McAdams. And then finally, Chris Rossini on three great
3: topics. It really is the basis behind this incident and that what's happened with the Republican Party is, is the uh, uh, issue of red flag laws. Yes. And we have written and talked about this quite a bit because uh it's it's the lack of due process it's a, it doesn't it, it doesn't work through the court system you don't have a jury but you can be guilty and you can be denied your right to own a own a gun and the worst part is is spy on your neighbor punish a relative that you're in a fight with and do all these things and uh, they will designate that individual a danger and uh without a court hearing or a charge uh they're not guilty of a crime they they might they might be guilty of uh, something but but that 's not the way we determine guilt so this is uh, this is the be- being used now, which is may- mainly the one big issue the gun grabbers want to get past because because they know that it undermines the whole system of uh, the second amendment yeah. and uh, and yet it is being passed off to the Cornyn people and the conservatives that this is just a token thing this is a compromise. This is to get guns away from bad people and cut down on on all the violence. So they use that as like an excuse. But it's a much bigger deal than uh, th- that we'll be hearing in in the media about why he's going, oh, it's going on. Coordinates. Cornyn is a good guy, and he's just trying to work this out. The strongest gun grabbers are, you know, the far, far left, and yet they're the ones who have the most protection, you know, from government guns and government protection one way or the other, and uh, they're the ones who can have their gated communities and have hard guns and uh, pseudo-government agents and some of them are actually government agents who are protecting them, but uh, at least uh, the Average person is very vulnerable to, uh, you you know, a charge made, a a casual charge, but a vicious charge that literally takes away the Second Amendment rights of an, an individual.
1: What they suggest is this might spur consumption of gasoline, this reduction, spur consumption at a time when there is no production of gasoline. There's no increased capability to refine oil into gasoline. And one of the things, in fact, that President Biden is expected to say is to tell the oil companies, hey, you've got to increase supply. You've got to refine more oil. And you can put up this next clip because this is from the Zero Hedge article that talks about this is the other part of his uh, tax holiday. He wants to uh, uh, request that refiners increase capacity. Remember last year he attacked the oil companies. Now he's asking them for a favor. He's calling on the industry to put its record profits to work and step in with more supply. Uh, and more refining capacity, because you are going to see more demand if the prices go down. But the problem with that, Dr. Paul, again, is that it's not possible. And w- the reason we know this is from the oil industry itself. Let's put up this next clip, because we did talk about this last week. But Mike Wirth, he's the CEO of Chevron, uh, and he said that it's, it, 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 it can't be fixed. He said there's not enough rep- refining capacity to meet the demand for gasoline and diesel because no new refinery will ever be built in the US again. That's important to read and listen to again. They're not building them and they're not going to build them. Well, why? If there's so much money, what is wrong with these people? Aren't they capitalists? What's their problem? Well, he points it out. This is his reason why he says they're not going to do it. You're looking at committing capital 10 years out, but we need decades to offer a return for the shareholders. And this is in a policy environment where governments around the world are saying, we don't want these products to be used in the future. So the oil companies don't want to spend all these billions of dollars for more refineries because they've been under attack constantly from the U.S. government. All the green, all the climate people have been attacked saying, your product stinks, we don't want any more of it, but we want you to invest billions to make
0: more. They're not going to do it. But as far as our topic for today, Um, It's about the failure of central planning. And this is like an iron law of economics. Uh, You cannot plan the economy. But, you know, they're always trying, nevertheless. And we saw this week the price fixing at the Federal Reserve. They raised interest rates by 75 basis points. And, you know, the first question is, well, why 75? Why not 50? Why not 100 basis points? How do you know what you're doing? And the answer is they do not know what they're doing because it's impossible to know. Uh, it's very logical as to why. You know, if somebody were to ask me, hey, uh, you're the chairman of lawnmowers, what should be the price of lawnmowers right now? My answer would be I have absolutely no idea. That's up to the people that are buying and selling, the specific individual that wants to buy a lawnmower and the specific individual that is selling one, you know, and at that moment. You know, what are they willing to part with? What is more valuable to them at that moment? They could change their mind any second. So there is no way an outside party like myself, the chairman of lawnmowers can go to these two people and say, this right here, this is the price of lawnmowers. If I were to do that, that would mess everything up. It would mess up the entire market economy. But that is what the Fed does. They price-fix interest rates, and they mess up the economy big time. So price-fixing must stop. You know, the Fed is only creating more problems. They're going to keep adding to those problems, and they're only going to make everything much, much worse.
2: So I'll, I'll hold my comments on the red flag laws and the energy crisis that climate hysteria has caused because it's not just here, it's around the world. I think both of those will will make their way into tomorrow's show. Chris though was talking about how the Fed setting interest rates and they don't know what to set the, the rate at. No one does. And what he's what he's getting at there is market discovery. The way you figure out well what should an interest rate be? for Jack Spierko borrowing money from Tom Hall is Tom Hall would assess his risk in loaning me money for the purpose that I wanted, his ability to recapture that money, and what that money could do for him in a safer environment, and then he'll assign an interest rate to it. Now. On larger scale, of course, it's not that simple, but it still really is. It's just that we generally make Jack Spierko a an archetype. He has a certain uh, credit score or what have you, a certain income level, so he falls into archetype A715, and that means his interest rates will be for this type. And then this loan falls into archetype B617, and then we get a, an interest rate. And markets discover that, and that's pretty much what happens with all loans to all people who don't get to suck the faucet of money like a tit off of a, of, a, of a hog, right? But if you're a banker or you're up in the upper echelon of the financial elites and you get the money to come out of the faucet, you either get it at the rate that the government sets, not really the government, the Fed, which is the banking system itself. It lends itself money. That's, that's, that's nice and incestuous. Or a little tiny bit over just I mean like a tenth of a point over, right? Or a quarter of a point over at the most, right? If you're up in that level of the system. And the Fed corrupts the entire system at that level. But I wanted to point something else out. This is really the bigger problem. You could say that system's flawed, and it is. And you could say that interest rate should be something different, and it should. And you could say the market should discover it, not the government, but that's not the system we have. So if I made you chairman of the Federal Reserve tomorrow, dear listener, what would, what would the interest rate you would set? And if you have enough financial acumen and you're switched on enough to understand the, the, the impact of what you do. And we know that interest rate, if, if you just use basic economic sense, needs to be somewhere in the neighborhood of probably about 8% right now. That destroys the economy with recession, but then maybe we get through the recession. Quicker, And we don't have economic collapse, or maybe we still do, or maybe we need to keep it low and keep it going and avoid the recession and hope something comes along and fix. Do you see what I mean? Let's try it a different way. Let's try it a different way. How much money should we print right now? Let's say the interest rate is just we let the market decide it, or we hold it artificially. I don't care. How much money should we print right now? I know you're going to say none. Okay, do you know what that means? Do you know what happens? Should we contract the monetary supply? Should we actively, instead of ease, should we, should we, we, we should go in and quantitatively tighten? Should we start pulling money out of the economy? If so, how much? Now, see, here's the thing. As bad as that system is, there were actual answers to that question that made sense 10 years ago. It still was a flawed system, but there were answers that were better answers. They weren't all bad answers. You want the real problem today? Every answer to every question I just asked you is a bad answer. Do nothing bad. Tighten hard, bad. Tighten a little, bad. Ease a little, bad. Ease a lot, bad. If I made you supreme overlord of the economy right now, we're still screwed. If I make Ron Paul supreme overlord of the economy, we're screwed. We are economically screwed at this point. It has to burn to a degree and be rebuilt. And I I look at how it happened and I go, it has to be by design, at least at some level. Does that mean it is the end of the world as we know it and we will all die and we will be eating our dogs tomorrow? No. And I will not eat the bugs and be happy either, uh, Klaus Schwab. Right? I will not do that. I won't be doing that. I won't be going. I won't be following the Davos plan in my life. I will eat my meat. I will be happy, and I will own my shit, and you will not take it from me. And I will be happy. I will defend what I have, because that's the only way you actually have property rights. But it's gonna hurt. I'm well prepared, and it's going to hurt. When I look out at it, this population, I'm gonna tell you who's gonna hurt the most: the people that are doing basically okay. Not great, but basically okay. The people at the bottom, they're going to keep getting fed. They're going to keep getting the bread in the bread and circuses. The people in the upper echelons, they may get moved down a bit, but they'll be okay. It is the person right now that still goes out and maybe not all five days a week goes and gets a coffee and an avocado toast at Starbucks, but a couple days a week. But they don't have any real reserves saved up. If they do have any reserves, it's in the form of a 401k, highly leveraged into equities because that's what the financial expert said that they were supposed to do. That person is the one that's going to lose their house while the people just above them a little bit swoop in and buy it and the people just above them a little bit swoop in and buy theirs that they can no longer afford when everything crashes. And it is the person who is doing really well apparently but has no real assets that's highly leveraged especially leveraged into the things that are going to take it up the shorts the most, they're the ones that are going to get hurt the most in this. And this is not, I I cannot overstate this, this is not like previous cycles. This is not like 08. This is a lot more like the 70s, and it's worse. And many of you kind of remember the 70s, or you heard about the 70s, or whatever. If you're my age, you really didn't, you lived through them, but you really didn't understand it. I think because my dad was in his own business and the space he was in that I talked about yesterday, maybe I have a little bit more memory than most people that are around 50. But if you're 60 or older, you know how tough. Let's say 1971 to 1984 was. You know. Guys, that was 13 years. We're talking about worse for about the same amount of time. And again, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it in my segment, so I'll let it go here and we'll move on to the next one. Uh, which will be for hearing from Dr. Barry. that means if you are in the right state of mind and the right place and prepared and willing to do the work, this is going to be an incredible opportunity. I really believe that. So next up, let's talk about your
4: health and this idea that cholesterol will kill you with Dr. Ken Berry. Good day, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question from Jim today. Jim says, would you give your opinion on the thrombogenic hypothesis versus the cholesterol hypothesis of heart disease? I was recently diagnosed with heart disease and told I needed to lower my cholesterol. I tried to do it with lifestyle changes, which only got my LDL down to 4.5 millimolar per liter. Uh, so I think that Jim is not a United States uh, citizen. That, that's the way it's checked in the UK and the EU and Australia and New Zealand. My doctor prescribed a statin. I, recall, I recalled some questions about the safety of statins and so did some digging, and I came across the thrombogenic hypothesis. So, excellent question, and, and getting a little deep in the weeds here, but I think it's worth talking about. First of all, the cholesterol hypothesis of disease is kind of like the Titanic after the Titanic hit the iceberg. It seems like it 's still a viable hypothesis to the average person and indeed to many health care providers. but this hypothesis has already been mortally wounded by very many research studies that show that an elevated total cholesterol has nothing to do with your risk of heart attack and stroke and then also more and more studies are coming out that show showing that an elevated ldl cholesterol the quote-unquote bad cholesterol being elevated has nothing to do with your risk of heart attack and stroke. Uh, there is another hypothesis, several other hypotheses. Uh, one is the thrombogenic hypothesis, and I think if you combine the thrombogenic hypothesis with the inflammatory hypothesis, then you actually have the true explanation of what's causing the epidemic of heart disease in modern society. Uh, so a little more about the cholesterol hypothesis. Initially, it, 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 it said that if you eat high cholesterol foods, you will raise your serum cholesterol and you will have a heart attack. That was quickly disproven. You can barely even move your serum cholesterol levels by eating a high cholesterol diet. So then it kind of morphed and said, well, no, it's if you eat lots of saturated fat in your diet, that's gonna increase your LDL and that will cause heart disease. And uh, so that, and it's not total cholesterol that we should be worrying about. It morphed once again, It's it's really LDL cholesterol that we should be worried about. And so that again was disproven that eating a high saturated fats actually protective of heart attack and stroke. It doesn't increase your risk of those things. It does raise your LDL, but it doesn't seem like LDL cholesterol is a reliable proxy marker for your risk of heart attack and stroke. And that's indeed where we're at now. And so uh, the inflammatory hypothesis is that... When you eat an inflammatory diet that's full of too many carbohydrates and sugars, that actually, the inflammation caused by that disrupts the glycocalyx that's inside of uh, the lining of all your arteries. Uh, and then that inflammation causes damage to the actual cells of the ar- arterial wall. And then the thrombogenic hypothesis comes in. At that point, it says well, time there's inflammation and damage, in an arterial wall, and you're eating a high carb inflammatory diet, then you are at much higher risk of forming blood clots. And not good, healthy, useful blood clots, but inappropriate blood clots. And you're more likely to form one of these inappropriate blood clots at the site of the inflammatory damage in that artery. And that combination is what's going to increase your risk of heart attack and stroke. And I think I think the thrombogenic hypothesis and the inflammatory hypothesis are much nearer to the truth. Only three or four decades of time passing will we know the answer. But I think at this point, the, the uh, cholesterol hypothesis of heart disease is fatally wounded. It just doesn't know it's dead yet. Hope this answer helps, Jim. Thanks a lot, Jack, and thanks to all the TSP crew for tolerating my ramblings. This is Dr. Barry. I'll see you next time.
2: This makes me think of a discussion different, not cholesterol-related, but dietary discussion that I had on Twitter today. And I think it's time for us to grow up. And stop believing the, the you know the myths that are being perpetuated to help us comprehend the world. Like if you know if you just don't eat cholesterol, you'll live longer. When like a tremendous, your body literally makes cholesterol. It's it, it's an you will die without the ability to produce cholesterol. It is the reparative uh, component and it's the structural component that makes you you. Uh, but this was a different discussion. The guy said he he had eaten uh, crispy bacon. A ripe banana and black coffee, and he felt great. And I said, lose the banana, add a couple eggs, and you got something there. And he came back and said, ripe bananas have a low 51, in fact, glycemic index. Friends and neighbors, the glycemic index is bullshit. And this is what I said to the guy. It's a lie. There's no, glycemic index is meaningless. It is meaningless in how it affects your total blood sugar across time. Period, And it will cause insulin spikes because if you do not deal with the blood sugar when your blood sugar goes above where it needs to be, which is very low is where it needs to be, uh, you will die. So you have to have the insulin to counterbalance it. And the way that I could prove this is because I make moonshine or vodka, call it what you want to. And if you give me a thousand carbohydrates of units, I will make the exact same proof and amount of alcohol for you, whether it comes out of a sweet potato or a ripe banana, or bread, or pure sugar—it doesn't matter. The only carbohydrate I will not be able to turn into alcohol, ethyl alcohol, will be a true fiber, which you can deduct as a net, you know, your net carb thing. Now, Ken always says not to do net carbs because there's all this shit that they market as net carbs, and they put stuff in it that they say is indigestible starch or whatever, and it's bullshit, right? And I agree with that. But when you when it comes down to if you're eating broccoli. There's a certain amount of carbohydrates in there, and the fiber can be deducted. You can trust broccoli. Ken even says that. So if you give me broccoli, I can make you as much alcohol as there's enough carbohydrate in there, minus the fiber. And I can do that with a banana. I can do that with a sweet potato. I can do it with anything. But what I ended with was, please stop believing. And this guy, I've seen him enough on social to know. He doesn't believe anything the government says. Except this. Except this. Stop believing people who you know are lying to you about everything other than the things that you've chosen to believe or basically the comforting myth and creed that you're using as a heroic struggle to comprehend truth in the world. You don't want to believe that a banana is bad for you. you. I'll tell you what, if you want to make some badass, basically, brandy, if you can get yourself a shitload of ripe, spoiled banana... It is one of the best inputs to make alcohol that you can get your hands on, because it is, my dear friends, pure sugar, and no, you don't need it for your potassium. That's bullshit, too. Stop believing the people about the things that you find comforting to believe who lied to you. Why would they tell you the truth about this, but they lied to you about everything else? Just a thought. Let's go on and hear about some really great tools from Tim
5: Toolman Cook. Hey guys, Toolman Tim here, coming back at you from the workshop where we create community, find freedom, promote preparedness, and share success. Back with another segment of the Expert Council. So hey, let's dive right in. This week, I have been coming up with, uh, some, I've been finding some really neat tool gadgets lately. Uh, rather inexpensive, and I thought it was time I put together another list for you. So this week, I've got what I call the five seriously great tools for under 30 bucks, and four of them are $10 and under. I wouldn't say any of them are life-changing, but boy, they're pretty good. So, number five. If you haven't checked these out before, they are called solder seal electrical connectors. Now, I will send all the links along to Jack so that he can put them in the show notes for you. But these come in a little clamshell package see-through. They have different connectors for the different gauge wires you use, and they are brilliant. I have used them there. So, what are the benefits? They're basically a tube with markers on it, so you know how deep to put your wire in, and then a ring of lead in there, or solder in there. So, you heat it up with a heat gun. Once it uh, melts the solder and shrinks, so it's a shrink tubing, it makes it water and dust proof, and it makes it completely... I want to say mechanically tight seal for the electrical some of the best easiest simplest cheapest thing I have come across in a long time so if you're looking to up your wire connector game check out the solder seal electrical connectors number two the Klein automatic wire strippers These are incredible. Every time I buy a Klein tool, I say, why didn't I buy it sooner? And these are no exception. First was the the tester pen, next was the circuit tester, and now it's the Klein Auto Wire Strippers. And these look like regular wire strippers, just a little thicker. You put the wire through at the proper diameter, the proper gauge. You pull it together, and boom, it Breaks the wire, or the coating of the wire, strips the coating off, and just leaves the bare wire all automatic and then shoots the plastic across the room. It has saved me so much swearing and so much hassle. These ones are about $29.99 on Amazon. They're worth every penny. They feel like they'll last forever. They even have a built-in wire cutter in them, down a little bit further, so it'll just snip it right off. But yeah, they're a great companion piece to the solder seal electrical connectors. Number three... The DeWalt battery mounts. Now, I had a buddy of mine up here in Alberta 3D printed some for me, and it was incredible. Thank you. But they're totally available on Amazon. So if you're into organizing, storing away all your cordless gear, that kind of stuff, basically what it is is just a flat piece that is mirrored off of the receiver on the bottom of a DeWalt cordless tool. So it has four screw holes. You can screw it to a wall, screw it to a shelf, wherever you want to and then you automatically have somewhere to store your batteries. So they just click in, completely secure, and you're all set. They got different colors, different prices. Just look around on Amazon. I will include a link, I believe, for a six pack that I have found, but they're awesome. They're all the same, but just make sure that they're designed to click in securely, and it's a great option for securing all of your DeWalt cordless gear. Now, the next one I just found out recently from a This Old House video. (laughs) I had never seen one before. You guys ever work underneath of sinks and how tight and cramped and confined and you almost need to be a contortionist to work on it. Well, one tool I got years ago was a basin wrench. and Have you ever seen them? They're just kind of a weird uh, two-way kind of pipe wrench that's long, skinny, and it allows you to get torque and torsion onto fittings up underneath of a sink in tight spaces. Well, it's pretty good, but this new one is called an under-sink Changing tool basically. A lot of them are 8 in 1, 10 in 1, and they basically just look like a red or black 6 to 8 inch piece of pipe. And inside it has all kinds of different kind of shaped openings so that it'll get the, it'll, it'll change the nut out under a, a basin basket, it'll tighten up the nuts underneath of faucets, and it's so, it, It's so dead simple. It slides up, and you turn it. There's no adjusting needed like there is with a basin wrench. And they're made out of plastic. They're dirt cheap, about 10 bucks a piece. And, yeah, like I said, there's 8-in-1, 10-in-1, depending on what you want to use. You can put a, a little bar in the bottom of it to get a little extra torque on it if you need to. You can even use them for turning on or turning off. The little three-eighths quarter-turn ball valves that are under the sink as well. Just an all-around solid tool. So look into that. And the one that inspired this video, wow. So I just came back from a trip to the States. And the one item I wanted to pick up was from Lowe's. So this is the only item you won't find, at least that I have seen on Amazon yet. And it is a five-gallon bucket garbage pan, garbage pail pan, or whatever you want to call it. So it clips onto a five-gallon bucket. It's six bucks. I figured, okay, it'll be good for sweeping up dust and whatever in the garage. It just allows you to kind of use a five-gallon bucket as a dustpan or, you know, a garbage can with dustpan built in. Well, it is so much better than that. It clips on, like, it's really hard to clip into place, but the thing is sturdy. I used it the other day for scooping up gravel. You could literally take it, throw it under the gravel, and scoop as much as that thing would lift, and it would never snap off of the garbage can. I brought two home with me. If I need more, I'll have to order some somehow. But they were they're just something so simple that makes your life just a little bit better. So I hope you like that look at these five different gadgets. Like I said, four of them were under 10 and one was under 30. All stuff that I use on a regular basis and really enjoy. So yeah, I sent the links to Jack. He'll have them in the description. If you guys have other questions about other tool recommendations, Anything like that, uh, solarpreneur stuff, landscaping, handyman business, content creation, anything like that, send it along and I'll gladly answer it and get it back for the expert council. And if you want to follow up with me, quickest way is toolmantim.co, that's the website, and come by for our live stream podcasts on (laughs) Float, on YouTube, on Facebook, on Odyssey, all over the place. Thursday, Saturday, and Sunday, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Come by, interact, ask, ask some questions, and share your knowledge. Anyway, guys, that's it for me this week. Thanks as always, and stay happy, stay healthy, and have a great week. So let me just give you some updates on these tools
2: because I've used most of them. So the Klein Stripper Cutters. They're fantastic. I actually used a a smaller version of this tool that was more specialized into telco applications for uh, the entire time of my life that I worked on telecommunications stuff. And they are fantastic. And Klein, period, is fantastic. You will not find an electrician or a telco person, data tech person, that's not carrying around a set of Klein snips. And there's a reason and they just will not use anything else, and there's a reason. Uh, the sink wrench is a tool that you will never need until you need it, and when you need it, you will need it, and nothing else will do the job. Okay. Uh, the solder seal wire connectors, I've used those as well. You will almost never use anything else once you try them uh, for, for the application that they're used for. The DeWalt battery mounts are great. I just want to tell you, those of you that own a 3D printer... If you go to like Thingiverse or any of the other sites, there's tons of options for things like, and that it wouldn't be just the wall, right? It would be any major cordless to manufacturer, etc. to mount batteries on the wall. I've done this myself. I have all my DeWalt batteries on the wall, and then I have my chargers on the wall of the tool bench that I built, and it's made my life and keeping my batteries organized and charged so much better. The five-gallon bucket dustpan attachment. I have not used one. I looked at the picture, I get it. The only reason I didn't order one is they come from Lowe's, and unfortunately, within the next week or two, I'm going to have to go to Lowe's, whether I want to or not. I am going to get one because, man, it looks like the bomb. I have links to all five of those under Tim's Tool links in today's show notes. Again, episode 3111. Now let us hear from... Who are we going to hear from now? Ah, Jeff Lawton, Swale or
6: Not to Swale on Steep Slopes hi jeff lawton here coming to you from jordan and um i have a question here about a property um that has a hillside um where they want to locate uh ace and it's uh, fairly steep and ranges from 14 to 20 degrees um 200 foot long and um that's okay to put a swale in 20 is a bit steep 18 is usually where you cut off so um an 18 degree um slope you want to tree it as quickly as you can i'd go for fast um, fast growing pioneers as support species and then diversify it later Uh, you could also because you say that the hill flattens out above and below you could put one right on the edge of the flat up on the hill because you want to graze up there it says and then the cattle uh, manure will run off the flatter area at the top and accumulate in the swale right at the top of the slope so we call that a plateau edge swale might not be a plateau but a a flatter spot at the top and um, it'll grow really good trees up there uh, because you've got the runoff from the the manure so you could put one there, one in the middle and one right at the bottom just as it flattens out at the bottom so you could put three swales in Um, uh, try and keep it at 18 degrees or less. So stay away from the 20 degrees steeper slope if you can. Um, It's not impossible, but the back slope's gonna be big and you're gonna have to stabilize uh, the uphill side of the swale with very hardy pioneers because not a lot of topsoil when you do the back cut. Um, At the mound and below, it's a lot more topsoil and a lot more hydration. But I'd still go for hardy pioneers to stabilize everything and then diversify later. And um, you shouldn't have any problem at all. It'll work fine. So I I guess the only question
2: I would be asking if I was out consulting with this individual is why. Uh, And I'm not saying there's not a good answer. But I find a lot of times people watch permaculture videos. They watch Jeff's work. Jeff's very swale-centric in his design. But he doesn't use them everywhere. Uh, I I am very much of the Lawton school of thought. I like swales. I love what they do. uh, But I don't use them everywhere. And so the first thing I want to know when somebody asks about putting a swale in or swales in is why. If it's just because you like the idea, we need to back up and make sure it's the right design element for the right design, for the right goal, for the right property, for the right system that you want based on the amount of work you want to do and what you're trying to accomplish. So that would just be the only thing that I would add to that. With that, let's move on. And now i got John Pugliano with a lightning round on investing and economic questions.
7: Hello, TSP. i got a lightning round of questions. I'm going to try and get to them quickly. If I don't fully answer your question, feel free to get in touch with me directly, and I'll get you a more complete answer. Okay, first question comes from Kern. Kern's company is getting sold. His old employee stock ownership plan is getting dissolved. He has the opportunity to take possession of that. And as he lays out in his question, he has basically three options. He can roll it over to the new company 401k plan. He can roll it over to his own personal IRA. He can take a cash distribution, or he can do a variation of all three of those. So his question is about how he best handles that with the least tax consequences. Kern, I think you have a good handle on this, and I would dissuade you from cashing out the way you describe yourself and your age and the fact that you're going to continue working and that you want to minimize your taxes, I think you'd be much better served rolling it over, and your choice, you know, if you're happy with your company 401k plan, roll it over to that. If you don't like the plan, or you don't think they give you enough investment options, then there's plenty of discount brokers that would be happy to have you open up an IRA with them. As far as the cash out, you mentioned, you know, you're thinking about paying off your mortgage. Uh, Listen, I personally hate debt. I don't have my own mortgage, but at the same time, you sound like someone that's financially responsible, your mortgage is a very manageable amount, and furthermore, your interest rate is only like 2.375. Kern, that's practically free money. I personally wouldn't be in any hurry to pay that mortgage off. So again, if I were you, I would just roll it over, I'd keep it in a tax-advantaged account, either the 401k or a personal IRA, and I'd let that money continue to grow until you're ready to retire. Okay, next question comes from JP, and JP owns a target-dated fund in two different types of accounts. One's an HSA, and one, I think, is either a, a traditional brokerage account or a retirement account or something. The problem is, is that the year-to-date performance never matches between the two statements. I'm assuming these are two separate companies, too, that you have these with, and that the HSA isn't part of the brokerage account. That would lead me to believe that the fairly large discrepancy you're seeing between the two statements is most likely caused by the reporting period. You mentioned that the HSA only has like a three basis point a year management fee, so it certainly couldn't be that. And we know that these are exactly the same funds and that they're independent of your HSA and your broker, so, you know, there shouldn't be any shenanigans there. So the question all boils down to probably the reporting period. And what I mean by that is that although they're both saying that year-to-date performance is such-and-such, one of those accounts may be counting the cutoff date different than the other. You know, So one's reporting as of 30th of the month, and the other one's reporting as of the 5th of the month or whatever. That would be my assumption. One way to maybe check that is to look at the net asset value that they're both reporting on a specific day and see if those add up. Sorry, I don't have a better answer than that. I also don't think there's anything nefarious going on. The fund that you mentioned is managed by a high-quality family of mutual funds. So I don't think you have anything to worry about there. Next question comes from Andrew. If I understand his question properly, he's asking, what's the cause of commodity-led deflation, and what are some signs that you'd see today to know that that was coming? Well, Andrew, that's an interesting question. Right now, most people are petrified about inflation, and you're asking about deflation. And actually, the question isn't really out of line because, you know, inflation and deflation, they're just two ends of the same cycle, feast and famine. As far as your overall question, the things you should look for, well, it's easy just to really look back in history. If you look back in the period from about, I think it was 2011 to 2016, that was during a time when the U.S. economy was growing and recovering from the financial crisis, but there was a lot of problems in the global economy and there was a whole lot of economic crisis in the BRICS nations. That was, you know, a big acronym back in the day. Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Those countries' economies had a delayed impact of the financial crisis and it didn't get to them, you know, for a couple years after it got to us. But we saw a classic example of commodity deflation where there was a lot of excess from factories being overbuilt and mining and other industrial applications had been overinvested in to the extent that we just had a huge oversupply of materials. And so again, if you pull up some commodities charts from that period, starting in around 2011 and going all the way through to about early 2016, you can see those commodities just month after month. Getting lower and lower. And we're not talking just manufacturing commodities, uh, because it was during that cycle that, you know, at one point in 2011, gold had topped out at over $1,900 an ounce. And by the time you got into 2016, it bottomed out somewhere just a little bit above $1,000 an ounce. Maybe I think it was $1,050 an ounce, something like that. And likewise, all the industrial materials and minerals like copper, uh, I think at one point, copper got down below $2 a pound. The price of oil had collapsed uh, somewhere, I think, around $26, $28 a barrel. So everything, even the agricultural products, the price just came out of all these commodities because there was just lack of demand, both in terms of consumer products as well as producer products. And there was an overabundance and an oversupply of producers of these commodities and the supply-demand cycle played itself out, where when demand came down, so did the price. And of course, the correction for that is that the lower commodity prices eventually led to lower-cost products, which encouraged more consumers to buy those products, which resulted in a growing economy, which further continued the cycle until you get to the other end of the cycle, which would normally be very high inflation, which would cause a lack of demand, and start the cycle all over again, in the case of the example I just gave you, that didn't directly happen because COVID came along and the government artificially came in and shut everything down. They created their own demand destruction. So that cycle got a little bit short-circuited, but hey, we're back in that upper end of the inflation cycle right now. Hey, I've got two more questions and not enough time to do them justice. These two questions have been in my hopper for quite a while. Chris and Kern, I apologize. I'm not ignoring you. You guys got two interesting questions that are very much related, and I want to cover them at the same time. So I'll do my best to get that answer for next week's show. Well, hey, as always, thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast.
2: All right, good stuff from John. Let's go now to hear from Nick Ferguson with a few questions from one person, but did it skillfully and artfully enough that one person was able to ask multiple questions. For Nick Ferguson on rabbits.
8: Hey, it's Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer. And this one is on rabbits. Uh, Timely information that I hope will benefit the whole audience. So let's just hop into it. There's a little rabbit joke right there. This one is from Dylan. Uh, Hijack questions for Nick Ferguson. All right, he's got three bullet points. I love this. It's clear. It's concise. He's right to the point. Do you recommend making your own rabbit feed or do you recommend pellets? We buy ours from Modesto Mills through Azure. The feed has no grains and is organic. That's nice. Uh, Two, what do you do with rabbit innards? Can you eat the lungs, heart, kidneys, etc.? Three, uh, do you have any reservations about doing the Justin Rhodes method of hanging innards in a bucket for maggot production? My concern would be predators. Yep, predators and diseases. Uh, Both two things uh, to think about with that. Best regards, Dylan. All right, great questions, Dylan, and I have good answers for all three of them. I recommend you grow your own rabbit feed by growing a fodder plot of willow, white mulberry, and hybrid poplar. Those three are probably the priority order I'd put them in since rabbits can almost exclusively exist on willow alone. Get those trees planted and growing. Harvest them fresh. You can dry the leaves in the shade for winter feed or just for dried feed. And uh, you can shred those leaves and ferment them for long-term storage of high-protein leaf matter for the rabbits. The beauty of this is that you can grow your own, be feed store independent, have no parasite issues, no GMOs, no pesticides, you're saving tons of money with something like an eight-dough breeder rotation. Depends on how quickly you're, you're breeding back, um and kind of what yield you're getting and how old you're letting those rabbits get, uh, you can expect anywhere from 450 on the low end to 1,000 pounds of meat a year on the higher end. Could be a little bit more than that even. So to compare that to beef at today's prices, that's equivalent to $2,600 to, uh, to $5,800 worth of meat. Compared to chicken meat, which is kind of closer to chicken, that's closer to 1000 to $2,000 of meat. And the cost to raise that much is literally almost nothing, just some labor and infrastructure. So, yeah, you can use pellets, but why spend the money? Um, I do use pellets occasionally. I try to keep some pellets on hand and some pellets rotated through their hopper feeders, just so if I need to leave... I have a very simple, you know, dead simple solution for feed that um, somebody can put in there if they don't understand fodder trees. So I say get the fodder trees growing and switch to real rabbit food as soon as you can. And what to do with the leftovers? Um, I feed mine to livestock guardian dogs or put them in black soldier fly bins. I can convert the leftover so-called waste into chicken and duck food. That's what I call winning. So, uh, sure, you can do the maggot bucket thing, but it stinks to high heaven. It breeds house flies. It creates a disease vector. I can see suspending a maggot bucket over a pond, you know, way away from the house and away from your animals, so there's no maggots changing into adult flies. They're just dropping straight into the water, and fish are scooping them up. You're feeding fish. I can see doing that, but not like in your... In your chicken yard or whatever, where everything is happening, there. Nah. Um, Why make something so disgusting when you could make them into black soldier fly larvae and get a safe harvest of protein and fat? Black soldier fly larvae are around 40% protein, 10% fat. That's awesome. Uh, So, I know that's kind of short, but I figure why beat around the bush and draw things out. In other news, I will be in the DFW area for a quick consulting trip the first few days of July, and then it looks like I might be tied up with design work for a while, but if you're wanting to get on a consulting tour, um, it's best to send an email sooner rather than later to get on the list. Just email with consulting in the subject line to nick at homegrownliberty.com, and I'll get you added to the list. You can read up on what a typical consult costs and what a day looks like over at homegrownliberty.com forward slash consulting. Or just go over to the website and you can click on the consulting tab. So to recap, grow your own rabbit food, feed the waste to livestock guardian dogs or to black soldier fly larva, and don't use magnet buckets, use black soldier fly bins, or just bury the carcass leftovers in your garden or around fruit trees. It's fantastic nutrients and builds a lot of soil. Hope that helped. I'm Nick Ferguson from homegrownliberty.com and rare plant store. Do good things.
2: All right, and for my segment today, we're going to be talking about kind of a fantasy land that I think some people live in with the whole grow your own food, mutual assistance group thing. And uh, so, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to drop the audio in from a video that I did on this today so it would be standalone on both ends. This is uh, a standalone video if you're watching the video, otherwise, it's a segment on the audio show. Uh, if you are listening to the audio and you want to pick up the video and the little bit of assistance that goes along with this visually, uh, you can uh, go to the show notes for the audio and you can pull it up. If you're watching the video only, you found it some way separated from the podcast. This is a segment from an expert council podcast. And the segment right before it was uh, one of our expert council members, Nick Ferguson, on growing rabbits. And I put it in that order for that reason. Might be worth looking up the audio version just to hear Nick talk about Raising Rabbits and how to do it uh, without a lot of inputs from the system. Because what we're going to talk about today is, well, I want to start out with a quote. It was the quote of the day for the podcast. It's by Ansel Adams, and it may not seem related to this topic, but he said once, Myths and creeds are heroic struggles to comprehend the truth in the world, and I think one of the things that gets missed when we talk about myths, right, and legends, and trying to use them to comprehend things in the world, is that we conjure up our own myths and legends today. Myths and legends are not just ancient you know, mysteries, or ancient spiritual truths, or ancient stories that those people in the past used, and we're somehow so much more sophisticated than those people that we don't today, this minute, this second, right now, individually conjure up our own myths and legends to try to deal with things. Now, what what prompted today's segment by me is one of my videos this week, somebody came in and said something really out of touch. It had to do with Bitcoin, and I'm sorry you're still pitching that Bitcoin New World Order stuff or whatever yeah, nonsense, uh, but his solution was that we should all save our pocket change. Now, he doesn't mean silver coinage, by the way. He means the crap you know, nickel-clad copper crap that we, we get right now in our change, So that we have something to exchange with, with our mutual assistance groups uh, after they go digital with all the currency, as though anybody in such a group would want a freaking butchered version of the modern quarter that they, they put out in circulation today. Uh, I don't think that's going to be very valuable currency. It was the, the second person that came up though and said, well, why not do everything, which in generally I would agree with. But basically, he wanted to really push the idea of mutual assistance groups as well. And this idea that what's going to happen is we're going to have our call and freedom cells like John Bush does, mutual assistance groups, networks, blah, 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 all this. And you guys know I'm pro this idea. I'm not pro this mythology around it. Well, if we have our mutual assistance group, we'll just all trade with each other. We won't need anything else. Are you doing that now? Are you doing that now? No? Then shut up. What you're going to do is starve to death and or kill each other in these mutual assistance groups because you have a completely unrealistic mythology about what it takes to feed yourself and to feed your friends. And what I want to bring up on the screen now This is from a presentation. I was a lot fatter back then, dig me, in that little stop gap there. And I'll have a link where you can listen to this entire presentation. It's about 45 minutes. It was a keynote at Permaculture Voices back in 2016 or 17. So it's five or six years ago. And it was on taking regenerative agriculture forward, uh, or permaculture, call it either or. And it was in this particular part of the presentation, which is about a third of the way through, I was trying to explain the scope of the problem. And these are just some statistics. And again, these these are from uh, the Data Food Marketing Institute, and they are at least five years old. They may have been a year or two old at the time because I used what I could get my hands on when I put this presentation together. One average supermarket, now think about this, one average supermarket in the United States five years ago did about a half a million dollars in sales, the exact number, $516,727 dollars. On the shelves would have over 42,000 products. Would occupy 46,000 square feet. That's one supermarket, like in your town. And some of you live in bigger places. You know, like I live in a fairly large city area. Uh, I'm out of the city, but I'm close. That's where I would go to go shopping. You know, we have dozens of those within 10 miles of the house, and we have hundreds of them throughout the Dallas-Fort Worth metro mess. Right? I did say metro mess. Nationally, they employ 3.4 million people. Their total sales, and this is back then before inflation and what have you, $638 billion annually. $638 billion of food sold to the end user at the end point, And they operate, say what you want about them, but they operate at about an average profit margin of only 1.5%. Okay, and again, if you want to see this whole presentation, which is one of the better live presentations I ever did, it is on YouTube on another person's channel who put it up. I have a link to it. You can find it in the the notes for this episode. the The, the other thing that happened when I did this presentation, I was standing in front of hundreds of people, close to a thousand. Many of them were farmers, and I said later in that presentation, who here makes more than a one and a half percent profit on their farm? One hand went up. One. Now, some of them weren't farmers, but probably half of them were, meaning that most of them weren't even making a profit. These are people trying to change the world. These are people growing food the, the true right way, the regenerative way. They, they weren't making any money. Many of them were very new to this, etc. There was probably a few that were making more than that, maybe they didn't understand the question, but it wasn't like a bunch of hands went up. This is reality. And people that think they're gonna feed themselves from a garden, they don't realize how much stuff they buy in their groceries. I would say try to feed yourself for two weeks without going to the grocery store, without opening your freezer or your refrigerator, and then tell me you're going to do this with your mutual assistance group, where you might be the most squared away person in that group. This is the mythology that's going on here. There is, within the human psyche, the concept of safety in numbers. We are a naturally communal species. There's a few people that are true curmudgeons all the way hermits that are happy to go live in a cave somewhere. If that was you, you wouldn't be listening to us. You'd already be doing it. There's people like me. I don't like big crowds of people. If I'm in a big crowd of people for too long, I need to get away. I mean, I go do big events where people want to talk to me, and I I literally always tell the event organizer I need probably three or four times in any given day the ability to walk away, not see anybody for 10 minutes and recharge, have a bottle of water or something. And so you need to give me a place I can go. And that's after years and years of conditioning myself to not feel that way. And I've never been an introvert in of itself. It's just when there's tons of people around you trying to get to you, it, it, it pushes me off a little bit at times. And I need to recharge so I'm nice to everybody. But even me, like you put me in a situation where if I didn't have my family, I'm going to reach out and do more work in building a social group. I like to be around some other people. And this is innate, and it's in us, and it's because we are hardwired for it, because it is how humans adapted and occupied the entire planet. It it wasn't done as individuals or even couples walking around with a few kids. It was done with some form, in the best way possible, of collectivism. I know some of you don't like that word, but I'm not talking about government here. I'm talking about 20 people banding together, etc. So there's there's a comfort in that. So then people start these mutual assistance groups and then they live this little fantasy world, kind of like you boogaloo boys do, right? And then we're gonna all be okay because I have this group. What I said in this is, in that presentation that I referenced earlier is that we're not trying to compete with that market. We're trying to enter it. We're trying to coexist and eventually replace it. And that has to be the mentality with food production. And all the other things that we need. This idea, I know what somebody's saying right now. They're probably typing me an email all angry, right? With their earbuds in, listening to the audio. You stupid jerk, we only need to feed ourselves. No, you don't. That's what makes you a target. We need to rebuild the entire system, and we do need to do it as individuals and groups first. But this idea that everything will go to shit, and then you guys will all just work with each other and everything will be fine, is a fucking fantasy, okay? It's a complete and total fantasy. It's not going to happen. It's not going to work. And you better pull your head out of your ass about that right away. And this is why I teach so much about preparedness from a standpoint of, yes, self-sufficiency, and that's, that's your solar panels. That's self-sufficiency. That's measured in percentage. That's how much food can you grow for yourself? That's a percentage. It's very few of you, it's going to be uh, 100%. If you drink coffee, you're going to grow exactly zero of that. And if your mutual assistance group has a coffee roaster in it, that's great. But where does their coffee come from? Probably Costa Rica or Colombia or Africa or something like that. We are not going to live anything approaching a comfortable life without the modern economy working. And that modern economy, thank God, may change and transform in positive and negative ways, but it's not going away. This whole idea that we're going to all revert back to the way things were you know, pre-colonial times or something is another freaking fantasy. And you need to get over it. But there could be some real shortfalls. Do you know what will feed you? Three months to four months of food stored up for yourself and your immediate family, and I guess what you'd call re- refugee rations. That's your rice and beans and shit like that. And if we're going to feed ourselves, guys, we're going to feed ourselves more than with anything else. We're going to feed ourselves with meat. Meat, eggs, dairy. Those are the things that you can produce anywhere, period. I'm not poo-pooing on gardens. I love gardens. I've taught about growing gardens forever. Fruit trees, nut trees, etc., all that stuff, you want to do that, that's great. But there's nothing you can do that will provide you the nutrient density that animal products will. And I'm talking about full nutrient testing. I'm talking about caloric, caloric yield that you get to consume versus the caloric yield you have to put into it. right? The effort you put in versus the energy you get out. I'm talking about nutrients and micronutrients. I'm talking about minerals. I'm talking about vitamins. All this talk about, you know, acai berries are superfoods or raspberries are superfoods or pomegranates. It's all bullshit. You know what a superfood is? Ruminants. Red meat are the real superfoods. If I try to feed you on nothing but pomegranate, you will die. If I try to feed you on nothing but corn, you will die. If I try to feed you on nothing but goji berry, you will die. Pick a vegetable or a fruit and try to live on it 100% of the time and you will die. If the only thing I feed you from now for the rest of your life is pieces and parts of pig, or pieces and parts of lamb, or pieces and parts of beef. You will not die, and you won't develop a single freaking nutritional deficiency. The end, infinity, I'm sorry, I don't care what your doctor told you who was programmed to lie to you and doesn't even know they're lying. And so, we need to focus on animal production Systems and we need to focus on animal production systems that we can either store lots of the input feeds that we need for, so that's when you get into your poultry and things like that, or that we can provide ourselves the feed for our animals. Nick Ferguson's segment from today. You can, with a small area full of willow trees and poplar and things like that, provide fodder, and you can feed yourself rabbit for the rest of your life. All you have to do is procure enough fat to go with it to make sure you're getting a good fat intake to go along with it. But we can use that same system. We can grow lamb, and we can grow pigs. Geese eat that. Geese love fodder. I feed my geese that all the time. Muscovy ducks love fodder. Now you got eggs. There's all types... I feed a lot of my poultry, specifically my ducks and geese, and my Muscovy ducks. I feed them aquatic vegetation, like water hyacinth, high protein. This is the way that you need to be thinking. You don't need to be thinking, oh, I have this one little freaking thing, and then my mutual assistance group is going to be how I get all the rest of my shit with pocket change or some other nonsense. Not going to happen. You need to think about how to feed you. And then you need to think about what you have that is actually enough value to exchange with members of your groups or your freedom cells or whatever you want. But don't for one second think, I don't give a shit who you are. I challenge you. I will walk into your mutual assistance group, and I will say, okay, drill time, boys, let's go. Two months, none of y'all get to buy one damn thing outside of your group to survive. And most of you that are online talking shit like this fellow was... You will either break and go outside the circle or you will hate each other by the time it's over with because, in the words of Ansel Adams, myths and creeds are heroic struggles to comprehend the truth in the world. And the truth in the world that is difficult to understand in this, and the real reason I wanted to do this today, is the scope of the problem. One supermarket, half a million dollars a a week, one supermarket, half a million dollars a week. The next time you drive down the road through any kind of town of any size, every time you pass a Walmart, Supercenter, a Super Target, an Albertsons, a Publix, etc., just go half a million. Half that's a million, one and a half million, two million. I know that number is much bigger today because of inflation, but just do it. just, just you know, half a million is easy to keep in your head. Half a million, one million, one and a half million. That's two million dollars worth of food. And that's the last step in the equation. There's a bunch of steps in that equation to get that food on people's table. And I know what you're thinking, but Jack, I don't eat most of that shit. I don't eat Debbie Crocker, uh, Betty Crocker cake mix, and Ho-Ho's and Twinkie's good. You know who does? Your neighbors, all the people around you. The scope of this problem is so large, it is causing many of us to form our own mythology to form our own legends, to form our own beliefs that everything will be just fine if we have a little group put together and we'll all exchange shit. The group is one piece of a multi-pronged plan. If you actually have a plan, most of you don't have a plan. You have a placeholder in your mind. You have a placeholder in your mind to try to make the fear go away. Here's the good news. You don't need that shit. We are not going to have the end of the world as we know it like I.E. prepper porn come from this. We are going to have some really, really bad times. But what do I always say about really bad times? They are the greatest opportunities in the history of humanity. If you go back and you look at people who have built the most incredible fortunes, the most incredible lives, most of them began amid destruction. If you are well fortified as you go into this, if you protect your wealth, if you protect your family, if you protect your health, if you protect your food supply, and yes, if you have good connections with groups and networking that you rely on for what they can do, but don't be dishonest about yourself as to what they can do. The next 10 years will either make you or break you. It's going to be your choice. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up for today. Again, if... Uh, you, uh you like this segment and you want to hear more, get on over to the audio side of things. And uh, that link will be in the show notes below. And for you guys on the audio only, I want to tell you real quick about the item of the day today. I mentioned it yesterday in my interview with uh, Josh Phoenix. And it is made by a company called Dragro. D-R-A-G-R-O. It is an electric pruner. And before I continue, I'm going to have to correct something that I said yesterday, and I, I even say in the review, but I added a, 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 an appendage to the end of it. Uh, I said that if if DeWalt, and I said it in the video that I made about this thing too, because there's a demo video showing how awesome this tool is. I said if DeWalt made one of these damn things, I would have bought it from DeWalt, and DeWalt 'd make it. And, well, if you go on Amazon you try to find one from DeWalt, they don't make it. And even if you go to... DeWalt's Amazon store, they don't. And if you go look for DeWalt pruners, it's kind of hard to find. Turns out they have a very new product that looks like a badass version of these pruners. So if you're a DeWalt person, you can order them through Home Depot. And I think Acme Tools, I wonder if anybody told Wiley Coyote, Acme Tools has them on pre-order. That's how new it is. And it looks like a beefier version of this tool. So if you're a DeWalt person, it'll cost you about the same for the bare tool is the one that I'm about to tell you about for the item of the day. Um, again, it's made by Dragro, G-R-A-G-R-O. Now, the difference is it's not a bare tool. It's two batteries. It's a charger. It's a case. It's all the tools to maintain and sharpen it, including some oil and the tool itself. So it's a lot more. Though I, I I'm just looking at the DeWalt tool and I'm thinking, man, I I, I got to get my hands on one of these. And when it's when it's added to Amazon, I will add it to Spaz. and I'll leave the the disclaimer at the bottom of this review that if you're a DeWalt person, and you already have DeWalt batteries and chargers, you might want to look to that instead. But this thing's awesome, and I even when I get the DeWalt one, it's not like it's going to go away. I won't barter it or nothing. Have have two around would be great. I got this because my grandson loves using it. To do all my chop and drop work for me. And those of you who have seen the real intense chop and drop management that people do on small scale permaculture, where you cut the stuff off the trees and you fold them in half and you cut it, cut it, cut it, cut it. That gets, that wears your hands out. These, pfft, no problem. For my grandson, I have him doing a bunch of chop and drop with jujube suckers. So the main jujube tree grows the jujube fruit. The suckers are like really bushy and they are thorny as hell. With these he doesn't even have to touch him. He just chop, 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 chop all the way down. It's addictive. He likes doing the work. They're great for pruning and they are great for, get this, butchering chickens and probably ducks. Haven't tried it there yet. I give some advice on what I would do in my write-up and video if you have not yet used them on any livestock as a slaughter methodology because you want to be sure they're going to work for you first. So basically dispatch the animal the way you normally would and then decapitate after dispatch to make sure it's going to work on the size animal you're going to do. Somebody asked about doing it with turkeys today. I said, I don't think so. They're probably a bit too large of an animal. Uh, Basically, if I have to personally dispatch a turkey, I shoot it in the head with a 22. You're trying, like, my big birds are 50 pounds. I'm, I'm not trying to hang a 50-pound bird up and, and do a slaughter like that. Uh, but they also asked about rabbits, and I know rabbits have way too big a neck for a freaking set of hand pruners. But check these things out. I think you'll like them. And I'm actually, as I'm pruning a lot of the, the scuttle, the scud off my black locust, the stuff that I do in the videos about thumb size I'm anything that comes off like that. I'm cutting into pieces that are a couple inches long and storing them in five gallon buckets. And it's wood fuel, right? For small fires, small cooking fires and things like that. And it's just simple and it's fun. I think you'll like this. You might like the Dewalt one more, but if you don't, if you're not already on a Dewalt platform, uh, these are great. There's nothing wrong. They're very, very powerful. When you check them out today, uh, check out the video. Even if you only watch the first couple minutes of the video, because I basically just told you what I say in the video, but the first couple minutes where you actually see them in action, and I'll be doing some other things with them, and when I get my hands on the DeWalt one, uh, I will do a side by side comparison to them as well. Uh, I think that the wall probably has a bit bigger of a gap and probably can handle a bit bigger things. It's a heavier tool, it's a larger tool, and all in, it's more expensive, but it is the wall. So it will be up to you. But again, Drago electric pruning shears. Oh, on the chickens and, and stuff. What I said about the rabbits, too, like once you're done skinning and all, like cutting the feet off, I think they were great for that. They worked beautifully for cutting the feet off the chickens that I processed with it. I mean, cut through it like butter. Give this thing a try, uh, unless you want to go with the DeWalt model thereof. But I haven't tested that one yet, but it's DeWalt, so, you know. Anyway, with that, you can always help support us doing your online shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, com. Go there whenever you do your online shopping, whether it's the item of the day, something else I've reviewed, it's all... It's all in categories, alphabetical, so you can find it all. Or if you're just going to go buy something else, as long as you start your shopping there, you help us out. No matter what you buy, you also would help us out if you would uh, join the member support brigade. I haven't pushed that real heavily lately, uh, but my membership program more than pays for itself. Tons of discounts, and it's 50 bucks a year. That's about $0.18 an episode. So if you love the show and you want us to always be here, uh, become a member. A little announcement on uh, Bitcoin Breakout. Uh, Tomorrow will be an episode of Outback with Jack. I don't know what we're going to talk about yet, but it won't be Bitcoin. Uh, Next week, I will probably do the Monday show on Bitcoin. It'll be Bitcoin Breakout on Monday. And that's going to be on the Lightning Network. The basics of using the Lightning Network, not how to set up a node and do all kinds of propeller head stuff. I mean, things that you, when I'm done with that episode, if you say you can't use Lightning, you either don't have any Bitcoin to fund it with, right? and so you haven't gotten on the Bitcoin train yet, or you don't want to. If you, there is no way at all that anybody today can tell me that they can't use the Lightning network to make payments and receive payments with Bitcoin. It is super simple, super fast, and super cheap. Now, the reason I'm even telling you this today is I'm still moving us into this new world. So that's going to happen Monday. That means next week there will be two episodes of Bitcoin Breakout in the same week. I'm sorry. I want to get to the one-a-week thing, and then we're clean. But I have to get this done before I bring on our guest next week, who is Natalie Brunel, who is an incredibly big name in the Bitcoin industry. And to have her as my first official Bitcoin Breakout guest is a huge deal for me. And I'm going to bring her on. We just got Guy Swan's application. If you know anything about him, this is like, he's marketed as the guy who's read more about Bitcoin than anybody you know. He's an incredible guy with an incredible podcast. We just got his app in today, so that's confirmed. We are going to book him. I have a member of the audience who's doing cool things with Lightning, started out with no knowledge at all a few weeks ago, and is doing like Lightning Ninja stuff already. I'm going to have him on. I don't know if he's going to be in between Natalie and Guy, but that's all upcoming on Bitcoin Breakout. So once we get through this coming week, I have made the commitment. The commitment will be there for you. One Bitcoin show a week, four shows a week that have nothing to do with Bitcoin cryptocurrency, none of that stuff. And that way you can pick and choose. And hopefully by then, uh, my my guy Tom, who does my web stuff for me, is got a family emergency he's dealing with right now. Hopefully by then... The Bitcoin will be up and running and it will exist both at TSP as in its, in its own standalone. So, with that, I'll see you tomorrow with an episode of Outback with Jack. Take care, guys.
0: You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around?